0: Well, good morning and welcome to Grace. I'm Pastor Ryan. Today starts for us a five-part series focusing on the key values that define a Christian generation. In a time when we're seeing an unprecedented exodus from the church by that generation that's just approaching graduation, we also see a pattern of disciplines and convictions that seems to keep people committed in this age of digital idolatry. Well, through this month, we will be using the research data from David Kinneman and Mark Matlock in their book called "Faith for Exiles," as well as key observations and conclusions from Third John to help us engage with those common practices that create resilient disciples. Thanks for listening. Today, we begin a new series. And it is going to be a five-part installment all the way through the month of May, uh, focusing in on those unique characteristics that make a disciple resilient. You and I, we live in a world that is extremely good, well-versed at influencing us. Does anyone remember these styles back in the day? Anybody guilty of wearing some of these bell-bottoms or ZZ Top t-shirt, right? uh, This is a little before my generation. My generation had this look going on. Um, uh, I remember uh, walking in the 80s by by all of the the class pictures, and I mean, every single one was just these big hair. Uh, I wonder if you could think about the fads that exist today. I wonder if you can think about the things today that are influencing you. Our world around us is a constant beating drum of influence upon the hearts of un, unchristians, non-christians, unchurched people, people who don't come to church, and believers alike. We're going to be working our way um, through the research material from a book called Faith For exiles, uh, standing here in the place of recognizing you and I to live on this side of eternity, we live as aliens, as sojourners, as non-citizens, as exiles. And uh, the work done here by um, David Kinnaman and Mark Matlock uh, has been over the course of a decade of researching and looking into those reasons that make people leave the church. They have other companion volumes that they've written that talk about those reasons. This one focuses not on the reason why people leave, but on the reason why people stay. And so I want to introduce this as a concept of our attention and devotion as we're going to uh, dive into God's word upon these same subjects. Um, And then to, to really devote ourselves to see what the spirit would have to say to us, because you and I live in a time of unprecedented influence and deception and a kind of subtlety to evil that I am willing to bet is happening in your own homes today heard on the radio program uh, grace to you this past week a series of statistics relating to the influence that screens that media has over young people. Uh, It was said that America spends more money on toys alone than uh, 60-plus other nations' entire GDP. Uh, That children today see over 200 hours of ads on TV every year. With up to 22,000 commercials that are continually seeking to sow within them a kind of discontent with whatever it is that they have. I can remember when I was young, there was a there was a new cartoon that showed up on TV called The Simpsons, and I you know all my friends were um, watching this. I, I remember that uh, you could get a, a Bart Simpson lunchbox. Uh, to take to school, and I remember, I mean, it was a cartoon, and I I mean, the best day of the week was Saturday morning when I was a kid, and you could watch Garfield, and anybody with me when cartoons were only on one day a week? Well, that's how I grew up. Well, here was a cartoon that was on after school, and I can remember very distinctly my dad coming in and saying, you need to turn that off, and I remember this, like, adolescent rebellion in my heart, like, why? Why? This is You're just not cool, Dad. You're just not with it. And I remember it wasn't until years later, having grown up a little bit more, that I was able to identify some of those influences within this what is a very adult materialized program being offered as a cartoon to children and asked my dad and he said, well, it wasn't any of the jokes, it wasn't any of the actual content that he cared about, even though I was able to identify its influence. My dad told me this. He said that it had more to do with the way in which the son treated the father. You guys remember Homer? Do the big doofus, right? That and, and what my dad saw was that what that's doing is it's depicting it's depicting a father in a way that's eroding. Something that's necessary within society for its health, which is number one, respect for authority and an expectation that fathers carry a measure of accountability that needs to be seen with respect from the children. I remember that really that really impacted me because I had still missed that. I wasn't a father at this point. But you can see how this becomes a type of cancer in our world, Uh, not a physical cancer, but it's a kind of cancer of the soul. And it needs to be addressed. It's really a slow working, it's a very slow change that's happening, and it's happening every time you turn on the screens. There's a, uh, there's a river in England where uh, people will hang teddy bears, and over the course of a uh, few months, the material, uh, minerals in the water replace the organic matter of the teddy bears, and the teddy bears actually turn into stone. They become calcified with, with phosphorus and limestone and all of the different elements that flow through the water. But it is, a very, it is a very slow, slow process that eventually takes something that ought to be made soft and cuddly and makes it hard as a rock. Listen, if the devil was dumb, he'd hit you with a hammer and you would go, Ouch. And you, would, and you would remove yourself from that situation. But he's not dumb. He's very skilled at knowing how to turn the affections of humans for the brokenness of our sin, such that we do not look to see Jesus as almighty, but we look instead inward and we think, ah, it's all about me. And this happens by the slow drip, the constant rechanging of that which God wants to hold with a calcification so that without you even knowing it, your children's hearts begin to solidify. They don't respond that the way they should any longer. You and I, we truly today, we live in a digital Nineveh. Did you hear the story? Uh, that, that was Ricardo's very end of, the, uh, of uh, Jonah's uh, letter, right? He he. He's questioning with God for the sake of this plant. And he's so upset over it. Do you know why Jonah is so upset? Because Jonah is most concerned about who? Himself. That's right. And God says to him, Would you look at the city? Filled with thousands upon thousands of people. And then he characterized it this way. Who do not know their their right hand (laughs) from their left hand. Think about our world. Think about the confusion in our world today where people cannot even make what is the most basic of moral judgments. This is is coming through to your children. This is coming through constantly in your household. You do not just have the members of your home living in your home, you have, you and I, we have invited through that little cord another form of influence that like drip, drip, drip is slowly changing the perceptions and hearts and minds of young people. Bell bottoms look ridiculous. <laughs> but a whole culture at some point thought they were cool. And the very same thing is happening within the hearts of people today. Um, I didn't want to... Uh, type this out. So I just took a picture with it. This is uh, from, from the book right here. As it's looking to the influence of those who are 15 to 23 year old, um, the, the, the real span of departure, the exodus from the church is happening for those 18 to 28. So about 10 years upon graduation, over 67% of young people leave the church never to return. Well, we we need to look a little bit before that, right? Before you get to 18, let's just examine uh, the 15 to 23 um, age. And of those age groups, they spend annu- uh, they spend annually. Is this annually? Why why can't I figure this out here now? Um, 2,767 hours. Two 767 hours being influenced by the screen. How much time is actually given to spiritual matter, and that's this tiny little box down here, in light green. Only two hundred and ninety-one of those hours are given attention to things about God. Where do you, do you see the disbalance? Can you catch the connection here for the danger? Overwhelmingly, young people are being influenced today, and so the book, as they seek to identify, how do we address this? There are four very clear examples of individuals that they deal with. And I want to offer those to you right now. So four distinct types of people, and I'm willing to bet we have all of them here today. Um, I I want to ask you, as you're sitting here listening, to identify which of these defines you. Which type are you? Uh, The first one are the ones who are called ex-Christians. So people who grew up in the church... But if you ask them today, how would you identify yourself? They would say, well, I'm not a Christian. I, maybe I was at one point, but I, I'm not a Christian anymore. That's the first group. The second group I have here with the letters C and E. Uh, these are unchurched people. But when you ask them the question, are you a Christian? They'd be like, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. And then if you ask them, well, when did you last go to church? They'd be like, "Well." I've been busy, right? Uh, I was there at Christmas. I was there at Easter. So uh, that's the second category of Christians. Third, you would ask them, are you a Christian? They would say, oh, I'm totally a Christian. I go to church. These are the people who just come to church, but then leave. They're they're not involved in serving. They're not involved in leading. They're not involved anywhere. Um, In order to meet this criteria, they go at least once a month So if you ask them, are you a Christian? They would say, yes, I'm a Christian. uh, But they are still quite unplugged from the ministry and activity of being in the community. They, They attend church, but that is it. And then the last category are those who they label as resilient. These are disciples. And a disciple is somebody who not only attends church, but is actively serving in the way that God has gifted them to serve. So understand it looks different for different individuals. Not everybody comes and does a children's sermon. Not, not everybody um, sings in the choir, but you have some role to play and you say, that's what God has me for. This is why I'm a Christian. Are you up there somewhere? Everybody can, can look across the board and say, this is where I think we are. Well, as we look at this study, what we want to do is focus on this group. And they ask the question, what is unique about resilient disciples that's different from all the others? What are the values, what are the characteristics that they have that we might need to focus on in our world and in the church today? Well, it just so happens that we have a book in the New Testament that's dealing with much of the exact same question. In fact, three little books, all written by the Apostle John. For our time through May, we are going to be working exegetically through 3rd John. If you don't know where that is in your Bible, it comes right after 2nd John. So, so if you uh, have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there. It's a, it's a tiny, tiny little book. Um, what we are going to do is uh, work through just verses 3 and 4. But I want to give you a little bit of the background as we work into this series. John, writing at this time, is writing to a church as an elder to the elders of house churches. So this is, we think, somewhere around uh, the region of Ephesus. And there are a lot of little churches, but here's what's going on in John's day. There are many people who are leaving the church. Doesn't that sound familiar? Many people are leaving the church, and when John is going to give evaluation of their departure, he's going to regulate it to a word, a word that we've read already this morning, and it has to do with their adherence to the truth. That when they leave the church, it's actually because they have bought into some kind of a lie, and they are departing, not just from the church, but they're departing from the truth itself. The second major problem in John's day is that there are many people who are not only leaving, but there is also a culture of antagonism to the church. Hmm. Hmm. Does that sound like today? That that increasingly, those who pledge allegiance to Jesus Christ are those who are looked at with a bit of scorn, ridicule, or just absurdity by those in the world. And John will write such things in 1 John. Do not love the things of the world, for the love of the Father is not found in them. And he'll caution the church, beware of those who have left the truth. They're defined by those who deny sin. Does the world today want to be told that they're sinners? I'm actually shocked and ashamed at how many, how many clergy members also preach a similar message, having been influenced by the values of the world. Jesus says these words in John 18, recorded by John Pilate, here with him on trial. You're a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. One of the major problems in our world today that Kinnaman and Matlock uh, Discover in the proliferation of screens, in the influence of media, is what they call "brand me." That this is the this is the foundational value in our world is that outside of an allegiance to Jesus, you form your own identity. That's the message of the world today. Have you heard that before? You do you, and and this is your truth. And I have my. Truth. Remember, Jesus says, I've come to testify to the truth. What's, what are you talking about? Jesus is the one where truth is found. But our world today has offered uh, little gods of all of us. You come up with your own truth. Uh, three ways that the authors depict this here. First, they say you are to discover the truth about yourself by looking inside of you. Now, anyone here who has children know how foolish that is. Um, I'm willing to bet, though, that if you're honest, you will say to some measure, you drip, 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 are a bit deceived in thinking this way as well. That your identity is actually something that you can discern from within you. What does the Bible say about the human heart? It is deceitful above all. Proceed with much caution. Secondly, they'll say, of our world... The world says you can believe whatever you want as long as those aren't hurting anybody, right? As long as they're not affecting society, which, by the way, is the ultimate um, uh, irony of a statement like that. To think that my own beliefs do not actually infect society (laughs) as if I'm not part of society. Um, So a, a complete ironic paradox here that the world upholds. Thirdly, they'll say that you should pursue the things that you desire the most. So whatever, however you are identifying, that for you is your truth, and that for you becomes substantiated as what you ought to pursue. I hope you are able to see the offense that this is to the gospel. Jesus has come to save sinners, not sanctify sin. Jesus has come to call you out of darkness not call your darkness... Oh, that's fine. So, as as we're looking to uh, the, the world that we live in, as we're giving attention to how it relates to the world that John lived in, what I'd like to do is read for you, as we follow along, 3 John. So remember, John here is working with this culture where people are leaving the church and where people are becoming antagonistic to the church. The book of 3 John. The elder... To my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. It gave me great joy to have some brothers come and tell about your faithfulness to the truth and how you continue to walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking the truth. Dear friend, you are faithful in what you are doing for the brothers, even though they're strangers to you. They have told the church about your love. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. It was for the sake of the name that they went out, receiving no help from the pagans. We ought, therefore, to show hospitality to such men, so that we may work together For the truth, I I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will have nothing to do with us. So if I come, I will call attention to what he is doing, gossiping maliciously about us. Not satisfied with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. Demetrius is well spoken of by everyone and even by the truth itself. We also speak well of him. And you know that our testimony is true. I have much more to write you, but I don't want to do so with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face face face. Peace to you. The friends here send their greetings. Greet the friends there by name. All right. So for this month, we're going to we're going to work through this. I hope by the end of May, everybody feels like I really appreciate this tiny little epistle stuck at the very back of my Bible. I want to offer us a couple of uh, observations in effort to draw conclusions to this. We're going to start here again in verses three and four. I'm going to be focusing on this clause right here. Uh, That as John writes to Gaius, he says that he is faithful because they're telling him that he is faithful to the truth. So disciples are being disclosed as faithful. Remember, we're focusing here on that fourth category, a resilient disciple. What does a resilient disciple look like? Well, according to John, they're faithful. Well, faithful to what? If you look back in the text, you'll see in verse 3 that he says that he's faithful to the truth. Now, there's there's more going on here. Even as he continues in verse 3, he uses a particular verb that the Apostle Paul also uses. It's the verb, we looked at it a couple weeks ago, called peripeteo. It means basically how you live your life. It means to walk circumspectly. It means to be careful that the way you are living is in accordance with truth. Now, when Paul uses it, he'll say that you need to walk this way in accordance with Christ. When John uses this verb, he'll say you need to walk in accordance with the truth. There was a little trick going on here. Did you guys catch it? We already, we already saw it again in John chapter, six, uh, chapter 14, verse 6. I think I have it here. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth. We have it uh, similarly in Revelation. John, again, writing here about Jesus. He says to the angel of the truth of Philadelphia, these are the words of him who is holy and true. And so let me ask you the question again. If a disciple is being defined here as someone who's faithful, what are they faithful to? It's a trick question. You all answered truth, and the truth is Jesus. That's right. To be faithful to the truth is to be faithful to the truth specifically to Jesus. Paul will say this in Colossians 2, verse 6, with the words, how you walk, being faithful to Christ. John says it here, with how you walk, being faithful to the truth. I want you to see the continuity between those. Um, All right, secondly, uh, as as we look, first of all, disciples being disclosed as faithful. Again, uh, let's move on to the next clause here. John says uh, that they are telling how he continues to walk in it. And this means that disciples are defined as those who walk with continuing conformity. They walk in continuing conformity. So Gaius, in the report that comes to John's ears, talks about a disciple who's listening to the Spirit of God. This is not hard for us to identify. We, we, we do it with other things all the time, right? I mean, if, if you went to the doctor and you said, well, I'm feeling kind of sick and feverish and uh, I can't smell or taste anything, you would say that seems to be in conformity to what? Yes. We do this all the time. Do you know that disciples are also supposed to have a kind of conformity? So that if we were to give, huh, medical evaluation spiritually over your life, we might say, well, boy, they sure love their enemies. And boy, they sure do worship God according to what he says. And you, you know, if, if you're not interested in doing that, this church is not going to be a good church for you. There are, I sadly can tell you, there are other churches you can go to that are going <laughs> to probably make it a lot easier. But a disciple... Is one here who is defined by being conformed, not to their own desires, not to their own wishes, not to the values of the world when the world says, ah, oh, this is how you should do things, this is how you should think. A disciple is one who says, no, I'm having a continuing conforming that's evidenced in my life to Christ. There's a great passage in the book of Isaiah. Um, Isaiah, as a prophet, writes here, Although the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, your teachers will be hidden no more. With your own eyes, you'll see them. Whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, This is the way. Walk in it. Then you will desecrate your idols overlaid with silver and your images with gold. You'll throw them away like a menstrual cloth and say to them, "Way." Think of, think of the idols in our world today. Think of all of the things that would be elevated above Jesus. Think of the influences that they have in your life. Is there a little voice? Is there a little voice for you? Saying, this is the way. Walk in it. Don't turn to the right or to the left. Now, let's be honest. Most of us walk our- hard. <laughs> Right? You're, you're going to have moments where, where you're stepping in the wrong way, stepping in the wrong direction. The question is, is there a continuing conformity? Because that is what evidences a disciple. The, the passage was, just to draw your attention to it one more time, in verse 3, it gives me great joy to have some of the brothers come and tell me of your faithfulness to the truth and how you continue to walk in it. You haven't stopped. There there are others who have. Did you you catch the full reading? We're not going to get into it all today. But there there is an individual who is in leadership in the church there in Ephesus that Gaius is having to deal with who does not walk in conformity to the truth. He has left it. But Gaius is. So a true disciple is one who's defined by this continuing influence in their life. All right, let's look at the next phrase here. John says, I have no greater joy than to hear something about my children. And so the next observation I want to give you is that disciples are depicted by their reputation. I've preached for weeks and weeks on this about doing good, right? People care more um, about what you do than what you say. And they'll only know how much you care when they see it evidenced by the life that you live and your actions, right? So your reputation is the thing that defines you. you know Jesus says it? They will know that you are my disciples by your help me out, By your love. By your love. That defines. It's a reputation that goes out that people can see. This passage out of John 15. Jesus says, if the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. You know, by the way, good litmus test to know if you're in the truth. Does your church and does its values line up with the world's? Or does it and is it willing to stand on the line and say, no, we are compelled by the scriptures and the Holy Spirit's leading. And though our world may say one thing, we understand that God has a pattern and our obedience is found in worship to him, to it and his design, not the world. So, of course, if you belong to the world, it would love you. As its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they'll obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. They don't know Jesus. You understand that? But they know his reputation. A true disciple, a resilient disciple, is one who is depicted by their reputation. Once more, let me show you from 3 John. Why is John praising Gaius like this? Why does his letter begin with the affirmation of you're doing right? It's because... His reputation has been made known. Go with me one more time into the text. In verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear my children are walking in the truth. Now, parents, does that not give you joy? When, when your kids love Jesus more than anything, oh, it just blesses your heart. And I'm willing to probably say that if your children aren't walking by the truth, that that's a kind of pit that can just sour in your stomach, that you continually have to give back to God. Because remember this, your kids ain't yours, they're his. That's a hard thing to hold. I want to be careful that nobody here ever hears a sense of shame over your own parenting, for your children may go one way or the other. Listen, they belong to God, but there is no greater joy than you can have than to hear that your children are walking in the truth. And therefore, a disciple is defined by this reputation, by this report that comes. So that you and I can hear that that's what's going on. All right, fourthly and lastly, we're going to look at this final. It's a it's a participial phrase, walking in the truth. And what we will see is that disciples are described by their transformation. And in verse 4, that's what we have. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. That verb walking, peripateo again, means how they live their life. Not just... Walking down the road, but how they live is characterized not by their desires, but by the truth. I feel like I'm getting preachy up here. Are you guys with me on this? Like you're all tracking like I wanted to make a real big deal out of this because it's amazing to me the way in which statistically we look at the world's influence happening as recorded by the researchers matching up directly with what God's word indicates. If you are going to be the kind of Gaius disciple, like the one that John's writing to here, these are all the identifying features that keep you in the church. You're faithful to Christ. You're continuing to be conformed. You allow your reputation to go and speak for you because it's evidenced that you love one another and that you are described by someone who's transformed. You don't look look like anyone else. You don't look like the world. Um, I, I want us to Take a little detour for a second. If if you would be willing to turn with me to the book of Daniel, into Old Testament, let's go to the book of Daniel. Because as we looked at uh, the digital Nineveh of our world, where people don't know their right hand from their left hand, the authors use a different city. They say we live in a digital Babylon. Daniel and his friends were taken into exile. In Babylon. And on this last point here on transformation, I just want to read a little bit of the story here in, in, in Daniel's letter. So, if you're, did everybody find it? Book okay, of Daniel? Here we go, chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Along with some of the articles of the temple of God, these he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylon and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Athanas, chief chief of the court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing an aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. Drip, drip, drip. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, and they were trained for three years. drip, drip, drip. And after that they were into the king's service. Do you see what's happening? They're being brainwashed. They're being influenced as exiles by a culture of foreign gods. Let's continue. Verse 6. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. Daniel, the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. But the official said to Daniel, I'm I'm afraid of my lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink, then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and drink your ser- and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days at the end of the ten days. they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. so the guard took away their choice food and wine that they were given to drink and gave them vegetables instead. How popular do you think these four guys were amongst all the others? You're like, those jerks. I want my bacon-wrapped chocolate bar again, or whatever it was. <clears throat> Broccoli. All right. all right, you get the point. Do you, do you see what's going on? This is, this is a historical example of exactly what we're talking about. These, these individuals are living as exiles... Where there is this continual influence in their lives, and they're being characterized by exactly the things that we see happening in the book of 3 John. So a a couple of ways that I'd I'd like you to um, applicationally see this needing to be lived out today. So this is where the rubber starts to meet the road. This is where it matters for us. Number one, if you are going to have your identity shaped by experiencing Jesus, it begins by leaning on Jesus. This is what Gaius is being commended for. He's not leaning on the values of the world. He's leaning, literally depending on Jesus. As we're moving into application here, I gotta, if anybody's sleeping, just wake up for one second here because this, this is like the main thing I need to make sure that you catch. I'm not only trying to introduce a new series to you this morning, I'm trying to give you point number one and, of five of five Sundays, okay? So this main point number one is about experiencing Jesus. As as we look at disciples who are resilient, as we look at those children who are walking in the truth, they are characterized, apart from all of the other examples, as individuals who say, Jesus matters to me. I have met Jesus. He's not a dude in a book that, that the pastor reads, he is alive. And I have an experience with Jesus. Here's how, here's how that gets uh, laid out. One of the questions that they asked these four people um, to, to grade, how much do you agree with this? That I believe living in relationship with Jesus is the only way to find fulfillment in my life. For the, for the ex-Christians, it was zero. That's why I'm not a Christian. Jesus gives me zero fulfillment. For those who come on uh, Christmas and Easter, 21% said, yeah, it's the only way to find fulfillment. For people who just come to church, 49%. But for resilient disciples, almost 90% of them said, absolutely. It's my relationship with Jesus that keeps me in the church. I lean on him. I rely on him. I need a relationship with him. All right. Second. They listen to God. They listen to Jesus. Here's the question that was uh, posed again in the statistics Uh, How do you agree with this? I'm re energized when I spend time with Jesus, listening to Jesus, praying to Jesus. I was surprised that actually 10% of the non Christians (laughs) hang out with Jesus. That's great. Christmas and Easter folks, 23% of them said, yeah, I get re-energized by that. Of the church going, almost 50%. But once again, of the resilient disciples, 87% said this is a defining characteristic that keeps me engaged in church. I'm re-energized when I spend time in prayer. When I listen for the voice of Jesus in my life. I'm not making these up. These are actually seen as coming from Third John. These are the characteristics that are involved in somebody who is faithful to the truth. Because they have a relationship with Jesus. A relationship with the truth. Number three is this. Experiencing Jesus that's transformational means I look for God. I'm, I'm looking to see him in my everyday life. Here's the question that was posed for the researchers. How do you agree with this? My relationship with Jesus impacts the way I live every day. My life every day is impacted because of my relationship with Jesus. None of the um, ex-Christians, 23%. You're going to see a lot of similar statistics here on this, right? About a quarter, about two quarters, and then right up on the edge of 90% of resilient Christians. i look for Jesus. The other day, I was walking with my kids out in the woods. And I remember when I used to walk with my dad, he could not help but point out to me the deer trails. <laughs> see that? See that? Right right there. That's a deer trail. Ooh, see that rub right there? Look at that. And I found, as I was walking with my children, lo and behold, what did I just have to do? But point out all the trails. Now, here's the thing. They were there all along. They were there the whole time. I just didn't know how to see them. I just just didn't know how to look for them. Do you know that Jesus is with you everywhere? That Jesus is active and alive and working all around you all the time? For the folks down on this side, do you know what the problem is? They haven't been trained to what? To recognize it. They, They just haven't been trained to see it. But for the people here, yeah, I see Jesus. This is one of the biggest things that I can encourage parents and grandparents, that you can do to instill longevity and resilience in the lives of your children. Help them see Jesus everywhere. When, have you ever had that happen where somebody just calls at the right moment or you, you happen to find something? At just it, I was looking for this and I didn't need it then, but now when I need it, the Lord gave it to me. Who's responsible for that? Well, that's just coincidence. That's totally random. Or maybe God is alive, and that's Jesus meeting with you. We need to help our kids to see that. All right, lastly is this. An experience with Jesus is, is uh, evidenced by living for God. We, we saw that most clearly in the trans, transformative display of Daniel and his buddies. Look, we're, we're going to follow our God. And we're going to live for him. And then give us an evaluation. Ten days. That's it. You, you decide after that. And it was obvious. Why? Because they were living for God. Here's the question from the researchers. Uh, two of them. Worship is a lifestyle. Not just an event. Like, my my whole, my whole week is worship. And, and I don't mean, like, Jesus. Like, I, don't, I don't mean... I don't mean that. I mean, understanding that worship is obedience to him. and That's something that I don't just do on Sunday for an hour or Pastor Ryan's preaching to him. <laughs> uh, I do it Monday through Sunday every week that Jesus has deeply transformed my life. Here are the stats on that. Very similar. Are you catching it? Are, are you guys seeing that these are the values right here? If a young person is going to grow up to be one who is resilient in a world of other gods, we need to help them to lean on God. We need to train them how to listen for God. We need to evidence that Jesus is around all the time and that we interact with him daily. And then we need to demonstrate that we live for him. Okay, that's true. All of that is for the person who wants to be a resilient disciple. Maybe that's you today. Maybe this message is just for you to be like, I might be just a church goer, And I'm really only attending here because Pastor Ryan is the best guitar player I've ever heard in my whole life. And that's why I'm here. You know, believe me, it's only a matter of time before you're gone. But if you're only coming to church, maybe this message is for you to say, I haven't yet really garnered those values that will make me resilient in a world of exiles. Maybe that's for you. But I'd I'd imagine for a majority of us, we want to say, how can we help our kids? Because this is where it really matters. And so let me offer to you six more ways that all fall in line with this. And I'll move through these very quickly, right? Number one, I'm totally not going to move quickly. Number one, (coughs) cooperative relational investment. This is an entire message on itself. Cooperative relational investment. Let me get real, real with you for a second here. When we, in our tradition, baptize an infant, that little one has very little to do with what's going on. This is an opportunity for the parents to fall in line under that which baptism points to, to say, I pledge to raise this child in the faith. I pledge to do that. And then I put everybody else on the hook, because I turn to the congregation and I say, will you also live your life in such a manner to display faith that this little one at a young age will come to know Jesus as his or her Lord and Savior. And what do you all say? We do. We totally do. <laughs> I don't know, you guys. I don't know about this. I think, I think we might have good intentions, but I think this is... By the way, this is a reason this is number one. If you want your kids to become resilient in the faith that they experience Jesus. You can't do it alone. It takes all of us collectively to say, we are all in. We are all in. At the end of these five weeks in May, I, and I'm going to talk more about this as we get through it, I want to have changed the DNA of our church. Here, here's, what I, here's what I'm asking. I want to see the adults who worship God carry such a conviction that it is not a division of our body that sees those kids over there learning about God and us over here learning about God. But I want the adults to carry such a conviction that you personally are willing to adopt one of them and to invest in their lives. And do you know what that's going to mean? That's going to mean birthday cards on their birthdays. That's going to mean putting your arm around them when you see them come in the building and say, how are you doing? And how are you treating your mom and daddy? And, And what's going on in school? And you might be like, geez, pastor, I don't, uh, you find someone else to do this. I'm, I'm not the guy. You are the guy. Like this, by the way, men are the worst at this. Women, you're awesome at this already. Men are terrible at this. You are the ones that I'm talking to. There needs to be a conviction in your heart that says, I pledged when they were baptized that I would live my life in a way to help invest faith in them. And it's something that we all must do. So you're going to really get tired of me saying this by the end of May, but that's my, that's my desire that when you and I come to this place and we say, this is the church where we belong to. I worship in Segola. What that means is that I also adopt one of the young kids for the time that they're here, because when they're gone, do you know who these kids will look back to and remember? Come on, help me here. Do do you have, do you have someone in your life, a church member from when you were growing up, who when you close your eyes, you can still see Tom Gursky trying to teach us fourth graders when we're trying to pick our nose and you know hit the kid next to us? Do, do you have that person in your heart and mind because now you have the opportunity to be that person? Amen. Are you good with me or can I go on from this now? Amen? What do you say? Amen. All right. Number two, we need correct as opposed to cultural Christianity. And here's what this means. We make it too easy. We've basically rebranded Jesus to compete with the other brands. To say, you, here's Jesus, along with everything else that you do. You know, I got volleyball practice, and I got drama club, and then my boyfriend or girlfriend, right? and then I got Jesus. What we've done is we've made it so easy to accept Jesus, then nobody actually ever becomes a Christian. Because that's not what a Christian is. Nobody can come after me unless he's willing to deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. How much of you does Jesus want? You preach it then. right? You, you with me on this? We have to teach our children the truth about what it means to be a Christian. And not offer them this watered-down message that just leaves to inept impotent Christians who, when life gets hard, do you know what they do? Do they keep coming to church? No, they're like, I'll be there on Christmas. All right, number three. Uh, We need to create space for and openly engage the big questions. This is actually a really good thing. I was going to share like a paragraph uh, reading from uh, Eugene Peterson on this, but just for time I didn't. Uh, Now I'm like wasting my time. I would have saved by telling you about it. But basically what he says is the world is asking questions now. People are openly talking about spirituality and, and true hunger. The problem is we've left them to just figure it out on their own. Moms, dads, grandparents, we need to create a space and then engage our kids with these big questions. Because if we don't, they will learn to answer them through the drip 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 of the values that they are spending the majority of their time influencing their lives number four uh we need to carefully follow jesus this one really speaks to us uh taking your time to help them come to learn who jesus is i personally struggle with this because i like i want my kids to get saved yesterday like get them saved you'd be better off letting them truly understand what it's gonna what it's gonna mean Um, When they did their study, they found that of the ex-Christians and just the church and Easter, or the the Christmas and Easter folks, the majority of them who called themselves Christians say they came to faith when they were eight years old. But of resilient Christians, the majority said the average was 11 years old. Of those Christians that stay in the church, they actually come to faith later as they grow older and not earlier. So we need to be careful with how we Encourage them to follow Jesus. Number five, we need to curate. That means collect close connections with Jesus. So, so what are you doing to help your kids see Jesus? You hope, I hope you're sending your kid to camp. That's great. That, that is a great opportunity for them to get a lot of one-on-one at their age level with their peers. The challenge to say, I'm going to have a connection with Jesus and get to meet him. Are you doing more than that? I hope you are. Sunday is all about that, right? But what about through the week? What about family devotions, which is, frankly, very hard? You and I, we need to begin to collect these opportunities to help our kids see they live with Jesus. Lastly, this is a big one. Church needs to be second. Devotion in the home needs to be first. I said this a year ago when we were out on the lawn. If you want your kids to leave church when they grow up, all you have to do is come to church. If if that's all you do, I guarantee you they will leave. But if you put devotion to Jesus in the church second, such that devotion to Jesus in the home is first, they're likely to stay. Well, Our culture has a huge influence in our lives. We need to be aware of what's going on. The challenge here on this first Sunday as we wrap up is that we would encourage young people to have an experience with Jesus. That they see him as alive and real. Let's pray.